there's nothing like actually trying to sell something to learn <laughs> what, the, what the market really thinks your product. Right, right. All the yeah. hypothetical discussions you want in the world, but until you're, you're asking a health system or a doctor or a patient to actually pay for it, that's when you really find out. Right. You know, I think a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that I've seen that, you know, built billion dollar plus companies in kind of med tech or, or health tech space, of course, they're, you know, competent entrepreneurs and smart and whatnot, but they've just done a really good job at kind of building and nurturing relationships. And uh, frankly, I think are, are better salespeople than me. So, you know, I think that's something that I would have spent more time on in the past and plan to moving forward as well. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven med tech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Cody Simmons, who spent four years learning about business strategy and analytics at biotech giant Genetech before becoming CEO of Dermasensor in 2016, where he leads development and commercialization efforts for the company's novel skin cancer detection tool. Here for you the key learnings that we discussed in this conversation. First, Dermasensor learned early on in the development process that it needed to conduct multiple studies for regulatory approval and to qualify for coverage and reimbursement. MedTech companies should pinpoint the criteria necessary to satisfy both regulators and payers and whether there's any alignment between the two. Second, show investors that you have the capability and competency to establish a manufacturing process and that you're prepared to ramp up supply when getting to market. Having commercial product ready to go shows the ability to execute your plans. Third, spend some time each month proactively reaching out to potential investors. Focus on building strong relationships with people in your network who can become trusted allies and provide help during the challenging times. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, when you think of the word branding, what comes to mind? A nice logo, some pretty colors, something along those lines, right? Well, that's what I used to think as well. In fact, most medical device and health technology startups deprioritize branding because they believe it truly doesn't matter. But here's why they're wrong. Regardless of who you're pitching, a VC, a manufacturing partner, potential employees, maybe even customers, you need to step inside their shoes and ask one simple question. How does my company or project make them feel? You see, most people in the world of healthcare and life sciences have a completely wrong perception of brand and branding. But a buddy of mine, Howie Chan, has spent close to a decade using the power of brand strategy to launch some of the most innovative products, services, and companies that range from startups to Fortune 500 enterprises. Howie recently started his brand design micro-agency, Healthy Brand Consulting. Howie and his network of partners grew up in the world of healthcare and can help with research, creative, strategy, and experience, all without the bulkiness of traditional agencies. Check out Howie's philosophy and his services at medsiderradio.com forward slash healthy brands. And for MedSider listeners, I was able to twist Howie's arm into giving away a couple free 60-minute consults. His schedule is pretty full, so Howie was only able to make this offer for the first three people that direct message him on LinkedIn. So head on over to medsiderradio.com forward slash healthy brands, send Howie a note, and mention this offer. Don't make the same branding mistake that most healthcare startups make. Give yourself an edge by partnering with Howie's team at medsiderradio.com forward slash healthy brands. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from MedTech experts, think about a MedSider Premium membership. 
we talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful MedTech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to MedSider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Cody, welcome to MedSider. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Excited to speak with you today. Yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, the discussion. Uh, learning a little bit more about what you're what you're doing at at, uh, at at Derma Sensor, the progress you've made, and really kind of the key the key lessons that you've uh, you've learned along the way over the past four to five years. Um, so, with that said, let's start. Uh, let's spend the first maybe five to ten minutes talking a little bit more about your background leading up to Derma Sensor and helping kind of set the stage for like what where you're currently at in terms of sort of the, the life cycle of the company, and then we're kind of re- rewind the clock and go back in time and, you know, uh, hopefully um, learn a little bit more about, you know, some some key lessons that that you that you learned. So with that said, uh, talk to us a little bit more about uh, what you were doing, you know, previous to taking on the uh, the CEO role at, at Dermasensor. Sure, sounds good. My background in bioengineering and also business, uh, you know, academically, so I did my, uh, was a, a Brown undergrad and, and bioengineering minor, basically, and also as part of the entrepreneurship program and also major in economics. And then I did my uh, thesis research in a biomaterials lab uh, for, for a master's at Stanford. And so I kind of always knew health tech was of interest, but I also knew from that master's research and also some kind of undergraduate experiences that my passion really lied more on the, you know, developing and commercializing new health technologies. Um, so, you know, worked at a venture fund part-time uh, junior year, and you know, uh, worked with a couple startups, and then at Stanford, I actually worked with a couple PhDs to launch kind of the first startup that I've been a part of launching, which was basically a biomimetic cell culture system. So the same way that the body, you know, stresses and strains cells. You know, for example, you know, heart cells, right? You know, your your heart's beating, your lungs are moving, your you know, arm muscles are subjecting cells to strain and stress. We kind of mirrored that in a, a cell culture system, or you know, you can think of it as like a dynamic petri dish. Um, so that really put me on this man. This could kind of developing and launching new technologies could really be great, but didn't really have the confidence to sort of jump straight into something full time. You know, at the ripe old age of 22 at that time. So um, <laughs> went to Genentech uh, for four years. So I did a, a two-year leadership development program there, mainly commercial strategy and business development projects. So it was four, six-month rotations. And then I spent two years after that in the uh, U.S. pricing contracting strategy group for oncology drugs. And, you know, Roche Genentech's the largest uh, cancer drug company in the world. Um, so it's a really good experience. Got a lot of, of uh, great, I kind of think of it as my, like, industry MD or PhD, right? Kind of a lot of that foundational knowledge and skill set and business analytics, strategy, and just kind of how to commercial organizations and really, you know, high-functioning, high-performing organizations uh, operate. So it's a great kind of foundation, uh, but, it, you know, been on the lookout for uh, opportunity to get sort of back to an early-stage startup. 
and was introduced uh, to the CEO of a, a five-person startup that had just raised a $9 million financing with uh, mobile ophthalmic screening and monitoring tools called Digicide Technologies in San Francisco, uh, where I was, you know, been living uh, for the last few years. And so joined them as the head of business development, which was a great experience because besides the CEO, there was no one there that had had any business nor healthcare experience. So it was really great kind of being his right-hand man and, you know, everything from kind of medical and clinical work to product to strategy and, you know, working to, uh, on, to get contracts with health systems and pharma companies, you know, we were having some challenges. So we kind of brought two uh, medical devices to market, both class one. We're having some challenges on the business front, actually really due to mainly due to reimbursement considerations. And, you know, to head with the financing kind of a few months after we had hired kind of full C-suite. And so there is, you know, kind of the, the ramp up team wise wasn't really keeping pace with the business kind of traction and ramp up, I would say. And around that time is when I was introduced to Dr. Maurice Ferre. And uh, uh, very happy to say that Digicide ended up making a very successful pivot to become a pure health data company rebranded as Verana. Uh, so they're doing very well now, which is great. But yeah, so so I left uh, Digicite and came back to my home state of Florida to, and so now kind of getting into the Dermasensor story, uh, we have a bit of a non-traditional founding uh, story. So the uh, how we think about it is the there's the founding investors, uh, Dr. Maurice Ferre and Chris Dewey, uh, who originally kind of started and set up the company. And then I'm kind of the operating founder uh, as the first, you know, full-time uh, employee and really got things off the ground. So to take a step back, Maurice is the orthopedic surgeon by training. Uh, his first company, uh, you know, the surgeon turned entrepreneur, his first company was an orthopedic imaging company that sold the GE. And while he was a VP of business development there, came across a couple of very interesting technologies one was a surgical robotics company called ZCAT, and another was he joined the board of trustees at Boston University around that time as well, where he went to med school. And another was this non-invasive um, spectroscopy technology that was really invented by this researcher at BU, Professor uh, Irving Biggio. And so he's you know kind of looking to kind of build his next company. And decided, you know, ZCAT already kind of had a working prototype or a little further along. So him and Chris Dewey kind of, you know, made an investment, sort of uh, ramped up this company, rebranded it as Mako Surgical. So I mentioned that because Mako Surgical went on to be very successful, went public and sold the striker for $1.6 billion. So it's kind of a great success story, especially here in South Florida. And so from Mako, there's been a handful of companies that are effectively make those spinoffs. Uh, Neosys, I think they've raised 100 million plus. They're here in South Florida. Uh, Derma Sensor, us, Ortho Sensor, uh, the same group of guys also started. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of like the PayPal mafia. We kind of have like the, the Mako mafia it's, down it's, here. It's funny that you, you, <laughs> you said that. I was just going to bring that up. It sounds like the PayPal, like a, the PayPal mafia, but, but uh, Mako instead. <laughs> yeah, Mako, maybe MedTech mafia. I, I don't know. <laughs> So yeah, no, it's it's been kind of great working with those guys. And so actually, uh, so I was introduced to Maurice uh, well, January 2016 and spoke with them. And he said, yeah, you know, basically we have these couple 
30 pound spectrometer systems we built with a, these couple groups in Boston. We've been doing early data collection, seems really promising, but you know, it's effectively the line I, I'll never forget. We have an interesting research project and we're looking for someone to turn it into a company. <laughs> so, you know, I'd been excited, you know, having done similar kind of stage uh, with the spinoff from Stanford where, you know, we did a licensing deal and went through the StartX accelerator and, you know, raised some angel money, right? Kind of like, okay, I, I kind of know what that piece of it looks like, uh, but very, was very excited to have the caliber of entrepreneurs and executives in the medtech space that had built and sold, you know, billion dollar plus companies before. And so it was really, yeah, I think it's really been great um, sort of having them guiding me and the other operating team and sort of going about that, having those, you know, seasoned heads around the table and board meetings, uh, you know, and kind of available whenever needed that have been through exactly what you've gone through before. And, you know, we've even at a couple points basically been incubated in, in Maurice's office because he ended up having a lot of extra office space and we didn't need that much. So, yeah, I think that's a kind of high level company, company background. Uh, Cody, that's super helpful um, background. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the technology like is and does and then kind of where you're at uh, in terms of the, the life cycle of, of the company? Sounds good. Yeah, of course. Uh, so Dermasensor, we're really focused on putting a high performance, easy to use tool in the hands of hundreds of thousands of primary care providers so that they can more effectively detect skin cancer. You know, skin cancer is more common than all the cancers combined. There's about 5.5 million diagnosed every year in the U.S. Primary care physicians can miss up to half of them, uh, but they're also referring uh, dozens, depending on which study, like 30 to 50 uh, suspicious moles for everyone melanoma, right? So they can miss a lot of them, but also there's tons of unnecessary referrals. The good news is that 99% of melanoma, the deadliest form, is curable if detected early. So really, we're trying to enable kind of a new uh, model of skin cancer assessment or detection and kind of bring the, you know, certainly, uh, you know, it's hard to turn to, to make, you know, primary care providers or generalists, you know, on par with specialists uh, on a lot of fronts. But we, we hope we can help primary care providers get closer to kind of the performance levels of dermatologists who are obviously the the experts and the specialists in assessing skin cancer. So that's really our focus. And uh, certainly there's a place for the tool in the dermatology setting as well uh, for dermatologists, but also for their, you know, their care team, uh, for example, uh, APPs like nurse practitioners and physician assistants and dermatologists that aren't as focused on skin cancer necessarily, right? There's some that are more cosmetic oriented, things like that. Um, so yeah, that, that's really what, what we're focused on. And our current stage, um, so we just announced actually in June, uh, the successful completion of the first ever uh, FDA pivotal study for any kind of primary care skin cancer detection tool. We also received FDA breakthrough device designation last year. So we're not currently FDA cleared and therefore, you know, considered an investigational device in the U.S. and not available for sale. However, uh, the regulatory path is different abroad. So we've been C-marked and have Australia listing. So basically, the, it's like the Australia FDA. It's called the TGA. So we've actually been doing active sales and marketing in Australia for about a year and a half. 
But it's been, you know, it was relatively slow moving in the early days, well, due to limited product supply, but mainly due to the COVID uh, related lockdowns. Uh, Asha has had zero COVID policy and kind of full lockdowns pretty much until March. Uh, so just a few months ago, were the, uh, you know, two full time equivalent, uh, you know, the team there able to start going to conferences and such. So, you know, that's kind of where we're at development wise. And, you know, the Australia work has been great. Obviously, the traction in Australia in and of itself is, is you know, helpful as a, as a business. But I think the learnings that they've gotten there, which was a big part of why we kind of did that initial work in Australia, you know, how best to position the product, pricing models and amounts, you know, even certain features of the product. We made a major kind of algorithm and software change based on feedback we got early on in Australia. So, yeah, I think that's yep. kind of a high level on on the company and where we're at. Yeah, that, that's super helpful. And I know um, I've got kind of a series of questions where I, I want to go a little bit deeper on kind of your your approach to regulatory and kind of building out, you know, the, the kind of the clinical roadmap for, for Dermasensor. But before we go there, you mentioned, you know, when you were kind of describing your your background leading up to taking on the, the CEO role, that your, your experience at some of those larger strategics um, and how helpful that was. I would echo that same sentiment for me personally. Um, I didn't, uh, you know, I spent the first gosh, 10-ish years or so of my career in in large companies. And oh. and looking back, although may, maybe I would have like you know jumped a little bit earlier into the into the startup scene, it was it was really, really good experience. So you know, just in 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 short, you know, was how I guess how important or maybe what advice would you give to someone who is maybe more entrepreneurial in nature, but maybe doesn't have doesn't have that, you know, that experience at a large global, you know, multinational strategic. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I guess how I've thought about it, both for my own career and also now looking back, you know, a lot of kind of observations of, of friends' career paths and whatnot is, you know, have some kind of core competency or, or skill set that you bring to the table, right? Uh, you know, coming straight out of college, especially I, I think some colleges, you know, for example, Brown and Stanford, where, where I, I went and did research. It's almost a disservice to students that they're like, oh, you're going to change your world and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, maybe eventually, but not when you're 21. <laughs> and so, I mean, yes, there are the Zuckerbergs of the world that, that have done that, right? There's the exceptions and the jobs, sure. But, um, you know, I think getting a foundation and something, whether it's an MD or a PhD, right? So a medical or clinical foundation or technical foundation. Or in my case, it was more like the business, you know, uh, working. Like basically all my managers were ex-management consulting consultants. And so really understanding kind of life sciences and pharma and, you know, analytics and, how, you know, how to synthesize and analyze really complex business issues and, and data sets and whatnot. You know, that was kind of my kind of core competency in the early years. But to your question about, okay, someone that doesn't want to work for a huge company and kind of wants to get, you know, get into startup more out of the gate. Are you a developer? Are you a designer? You know, do you really kind of become an, you know, digital marketing uh, guru? And is that kind of what you know really well? I think kind of having something kind of clear, not that you're the best in the world at it, right? But something that you really have that kind of core proficiency in, I think is important. So then, you know, even as a generalist, if you're a founder, you kind of know you have that skill set you can bring to the table. And can kind of bring, have others, you know, as you kind of build out the team and hope they're successful, that can bring complementary skill sets to the table. 
Yeah, yeah. I like it. The, yeah. the, 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 my thoughts on that. Okay, yeah. that's good stuff. That's good stuff. Um, let's transition to kind of some of the, these core functional areas um, and, and you know, some of the key lessons you learned along the way, how you're generally approaching things at, at Dermasensor. And, and let's start out with that, that breakthrough device designation that you, I think you mentioned it earlier in, our, in, our, earlier in, the, in the conversation here. I think it was, yep. I, I don't remember exactly, but I, I believe about a year, we're recording this conversation in mid-2022. So about a year ago in 21, you received breakthrough uh, device de- designation by, by FDA. So first, I guess, congratulations on that. And so just just really curious you know, what, what, what impact or what has that enabled maybe you to, to do at Derma Sensor? And then what have you, what, have, you know, are there a couple things that you, that you've learned kind of about, you know, through this, through this kind of global regulatory approach that, that you think would be, uh, that that's significant, right. And, and would be helpful for, for other, you know, entrepreneurs or, or, or uh, startup leaders in the, in the med tech and health tech arena. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the breakthrough uh, designation, Certainly is helpful. I think, you know, it was helpful for the, the recent $10 million we raised, you know, kind of that formal stamp or, or designation from the FDA is, you know, basically there's two main criteria. There's a lot of nuances, but, you know, that you address a disease that is deadly and that there's no other products currently on the market with the same indication for use, right? Or that, that does the same thing, sort of another way. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's easy enough to read about the criteria and, and, you know, kind of think about whether you can meet that. I think, and obviously regulatory folks can help. So on that, that part of the question on the regulatory front, you know, I think it's really key to realize that you've got to invest the time and or money, often money working with an expert that really understands this well out of the gate, not to flush out all the nuances in advance, but to put you on the right path. So you have an understanding of, you know, is this FDA exempt? Is it class one, class two, maybe class three? Like get get an idea of where you're going. And I think also as part of that, if you're able to, you know, through discussions with experts or kind of engaging a, you know, a consultant or a firm, uh, have a sense of like, all right, how does reimbursement and the requirements for regulators mesh or not mesh with reimbursement requirements? So that's something that we did early on, and I think was kind of a helpful North Star in a sense that there wasn't really a study for us that would satisfy the FDA and also payers. Like we kind of had to do a two-step approach, whereas effectively a big clinical validation study to get to the FDA, followed by, you know, clinical utility studies that payers really want to see, you know, real world longitudinal how does use of this device benefit, you know, patient care, skin cancer detection, et cetera. So then getting a sense of, you know, what is your regulatory path and is there some way to align that with reimbursement so you can maybe do one or two studies in parallel versus sequentially. For us, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. But knowing that in advance was really important. So that that kind of be my high level. That, that's great stuff. I, I've heard so many, um, especially it seems like maybe over the past couple of years, uh, not to um, not to say this has always been underappreciated per se, but I've heard so many, you know, kind of you know startup leaders mention something similar as, as as you that 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 was maybe either a key lesson learned or something that they really honed in on early on is 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 not just identifying you know the, the clinical work that's needed for the reg pathway, but trying trying to figure out if there's there's any synergy or overlap um, as 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 um, as it relates to. What payers are going to want to see? What clinical data payers payers are going to want to see to to uh, 
to whether it's you know for Definitely. the need for for to generate you know a new a new CPT code or you know just just to you know win over or compel payers to cover cover your your device or therapy. So that's that's really good stuff. Um, one other quick follow up question in regards to your your first comment around identifying you know a consultant or a firm to kind of help lay the foundation. How important is it that they have domain expertise in in your specific therapeutic arena? So like in your case whether it's be, you know, whether it's, you know, skin cancer, dermatology, mm. like how, how crucial is that versus just finding someone that's like really good at reg? Yeah, I guess from, I, I didn't, wasn't necessarily uh, sophisticated enough to really think about that in detail at the outset. Now in reflecting back, I think I would say definitely someone who's in your general subdivision or sub-industry, I guess, within mm-hmm. the life sciences. So someone who only does pharma, your med tech or diagnostic startups, diagnostic startup, like keep looking, right? Because there's enough, there's there's plenty of folks that you can speak to and find, but someone that specifically knows, you know, kind of primary care, dermatology, point of care tasks. Like, I don't think that's uh, so necessary. If you can find someone like that, great. But you know, if they're much more expensive or like they don't come with their strong recommendations or something like that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily optimize that for that, but it's definitely one of the considerations. I think you just have to realize that, okay, if it's someone that kind of knows med tech, med tech and diagnostics generally, but it hasn't necessarily done much work with our specific type of tool, that's fine. You may just have to pay a little more for them to come up to speed, or maybe you make that agreement with them, Scott, up front and say, Hey, listen, I like you a lot. Like, your pricing is fair. I want to work with you. You don't really know our space much, though. You know, would you guys mind, you know, kind of doing five, 10 hours of review of like, you know, this, this, all these materials we can send through and kind of waving that as part of the project, you know? Got it. Something like that. Yep. Yep. That's, that's, that's super helpful. Let's transition in, into kind of the next, the next topic, which is, which is clinical. And you, you kind of touched on this um, a little bit already, but, you completed, you know, the the the, um, the pivotal trial, um, I believe, just a few months ago, right? So was that like May, June, yep. two thousand twenty-two? Here, something like yeah, that. Yeah, we 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 announced it. Yeah, okay. we we announced it in June twenty twenty-two. Yeah. And I think that was the first. That was the that was the first pivotal uh, for uh, skin cancer detection, right? For for primary care. Uh, for primary was, care, that's yeah. the key piece. Yeah, there's been two tools that have been FDA approved uh, over the last decade. Uh, not a one of them has really gotten uh, much use. Melifine actually was discontinued after a few years. The other product, Nevisense, uh, was approved in, I believe, 2017, maybe 2018. Uh, if I had to guess, don't uh, hold me to it. I was going to say don't quote me, but I'm on a podcast. So uh, I had to guess maybe it's in use by a couple dozen or, or a few dozen dermatologists here in the U.S. And I think you know part of the challenge is like dermatologists are pretty good at assessing skin. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what they do, right? That's their specialty. So, you know, a non-invasive tool to improve that, yeah, it's possible, but um, but challenging because uh, that is their expertise. And there's some, uh, you know, kind of clinical and, and financial considerations as well that don't necessarily align well with, with them using tools like that, especially kind of expensive and complex tools like the couple that have been approved to date. And so, you know, really what we'll, we'll we think the more them that need is primary care. Actually, more suspicious skin lesions are assessed by primary care providers and dermatologists, right? There's often the, oh, and what do you think, doc, of this mole, you know, 
I noticed it, or my wife noticed it. Should I go see a dermatologist or not? And they, they can't just not say anything, right? Like they, they have to make that assessment and that referral decision. Um, and that's what I mentioned earlier on in our conversation, right? That they commit, you know, literature shows and actually our studies show they miss up to half of the skin cancers that their patients are pointing at, but that they're also making dozens of referrals uh, or biopsies, sometimes primary care providers uh, do biopsies pretty regularly for everyone melanoma, right? So, you know, we're trying to improve prove that part of the funnel. And so back to your, your comment, yes, we, this is the first ever pivotal study that's been successfully completed for any kind of primary care or skin cancer device. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.